Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. <laughs> what, what, what are you drinking? I know you're a, you're a connoisseur. What do you got there? Yeah, this is uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company Murdered Out. They're dark roast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so freshly made. You got a uh, particular way you're committed to making coffee? Um, not really. Uh, this morning was a um, pour over. Um, that's tip. My wife is dead set against Keurigs for whatever reason. Uh, so we went away from the Keurigs, and to get single cups of coffee is is now a pour over. Um, and uh, so she's she bought into the pure over pour overs. If I'm up for more than one cup, I'm I usually try to do French press. Um, but this morning was a pour over. I, but I, I didn't have the coffee ground uh, well enough for the pour over. It was more for a, a French press grind. So it's not the greatest cup of coffee, to be honest with you. Okay, all right, but all it's, right. it's okay. But no, uh, no, no drip, huh? No, Mister Coffee, plug it into the wall there and uh, drip machine. That, that's what I got going on. Yeah, she she had that. That's what she got rid of. Um, when or when we when we bought the Keurig, that's what she got rid of the the Mister Drip. Mm. And then when she couldn't get the my wife doesn't like coffee. She likes creamer that's somewhat flavored like yeah. coffee. Uh-huh. Um, I know the she type. Could, yeah, so she couldn't quite get the 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 taste right with the Keurig. So then we went back to the Mister Coffee machine. Um, but when we left Norway, we lost it uh, for a long time, and then so she got into um, she got into the pour overs, and then now that she got the pour overs, she doesn't want to go back to the Mister Coffee machine. So, um, yeah, we have a hot pot and a pour over. So good for her. I mean, it, it is much more aesthetically pleasing. You, you don't see anybody posting pictures on social <laughs> media of their Mister Coffee machine. <laughs> No. <laughs> that's true i think a large part was the clutter she's she's a she's anti-clutter mm. and uh one of the large things was she didn't like um how it would take up kitchen counter space so okay gotcha yeah it makes sense totally makes sense mm-hmm. and uh so you're in ohio now are you back to your hometown is that where you ended up is back where you started yeah yeah um back where i started yeah we're, we're about 10 minutes maybe from the house i grew up in um, we found a little home here recently and, and so, uh, we've been, I think moved in since about November, I think. And, um, the, the main reason for coming back home was this time last year, 
we didn't know if I'd be alive at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so, um, such a rare cancer and such a, um, not much is known about it that, uh, we, we didn't know how much time I had. So we were preparing for the worst. And, uh, so we bought a little travel trailer and put it on my dad's, my mom and dad's property. And we're living in that travel trailer up until October. Um, and so even to this day, we really don't know every three months. We really don't know what's go- what's going to happen. The doctors don't really know the best guess they had. They started off a 70, 30 chance. It would come back. Now they're around 50, 50. Hmm. Um, but, uh, because of that, I didn't want to deprive my family of the final, you know, months or however long I had to live. So um, we decided to stay in the area. We we're about hour and a half drive from the cancer hospital, the cancer center that I've been attending, the, okay. the James Cancer Hospital in Columbus. Um, so it's 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 a relatively easy drive. You know, it's about an hour and a half. But for anybody that's been on deputation as missionaries, an hour and a half is nothing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we, it's actually quite a short drive. Um, but that's the main reason we're back here. And it, it, it is quite interesting. You know, um, I've been gone for the better part of 20 years and, um, mm-hmm. in some ways it's the same in a lot of ways it's changed a lot. Um, I haven't, I literally haven't talked to anybody that I graduated high school with for 20 years, um, Maybe a short conversation on on Facebook, happy birthday or something like that. But um, and I think one time when I was back from the military, um, I had some guys over for for a campfire, I think. But outside of that, so now I'm getting to see everybody. I get to uh, see what they've been doing for the past 20 years. Hmm. And so is this um, like a smaller town. You came from a smaller high school then. Is that that's the vibe I'm getting is that <clears throat> these are you knew everybody or whatever in your class. Right. It's it's. The city itself, there's a city of Portsmouth. I don't really live in Portsmouth, although my address is Portsmouth. Um, it's, I think the county at large is 20,000 people. Um, the town, the, the high school that I went through has about, I want to say 4,000, 5,000 people. I'm not, those are not exact numbers, but I'm guessing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's around, it's not extremely small. I've lived in smaller towns, um, but. 6,000 is yeah. mo- smaller than most, I guess. Small Midwest town. That's That speaks mm-hmm. to my heart. That's where my wife and I are from is a small, lower Midwest town in central Missouri. Uh, but my, my graduating class had 38 people. So oh, so my wife's from uh, Centralia. Or, um, oh, really? Yeah. So she's, Wild. Well, not, not Centralia. I'm sorry. That's where her aunt lives. Um, well, I know where Centralia is. That's Hallsville. Hallsville is like about 20 20- minutes north of columbia that's what oh, okay it is. gotcha gotcha so she yes. lives about 20 minutes north of columbia yeah my wife and i are from sedalia missouri so oh, okay yeah, yeah highway 50 yeah. runs right yeah. through it yeah we go down there we want to meet up man we go down there every um christmas season if you're oh, okay if you're free we're down there for usually like two weeks or something maybe we can meet in the middle well yeah yeah we're actually uh we're only there in the summers because I've been a pastor in Utah for the last nine years. So, oh, okay, yeah. okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, we're out here with mingling with the Mormons. So. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting <laughs> to talk to sometime because we don't really get yeah. many Mormons around here. We have uh, we have a lot of Amish communities around here. Actually, that's like yeah, probably the. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call them. I guess they would be considered a, dom- a denomination of some sort, but. Um, lots of Amish communities. We buy most of our furniture from them because it's just as just a little bit more expensive than than buying stuff from like Big Sandy or or, or a furniture store, 
and you're getting like handmade stuff from the Amish and yeah, you're um, getting stuff that your grandkids will use. Yeah. And it's, and they're much more honest when they try to sell you stuff, mm. you know, like this is going to go wrong. This might not go wrong. And um, I mean, most of the outdoor furniture we have has like lifetime warranties on it. So I, I, I didn't see a problem spending an extra hundred dollars to get great quality furniture as opposed to getting decent stuff from the stores. But what's interesting about the Amish, you know, I've been trying to read up a little bit on their on their theology, and, and it's hard mm. it's hard to find. Sometimes you got to find. I found some sources from some of their stores, um, but what what's shocking to me is is that not once have I ever been evangelized by some of the Amish. Mm. And it's like if you if you truly believe that that we are lost, the large majority of the of your neighbors are lost. Why hasn't a single person come and 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 you know, outside of trying to sell me uh, corn and green beans and 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 furniture and stuff like that, not one person has tried to evangelize me. So I don't know. We've been building a relationship with one of the Amish um, that sells us the furniture, and I think that I'm going to approach him about that later. It's like, hmm. what do you actually believe, and what, what do you? Why aren't you like trying to convince me to join the Amish? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I wonder how much their pacifism plays into that. Like. Um you take pacifism or just non-confrontation to its logical conclusion, a spiritual conversation with people that disagree with you is pretty yeah. uh, confrontational, right? I wonder if that if that's just part of it. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's something that I'm, I want to get it more into as, as the longer I'm here. I've just started feeling well again. Um, you know, treatment start, stopped around November. Um, took a couple months just to kind of re, you know recover from that. Mm. Uh, per pretty harsh treatment because they said uh, this is a really aggressive cancer, so they took a very harsh, aggressive, uh, direct treatment plan. Um, and so it took, it took me a while, and I'm just now starting to feel like my energy levels are back. And wow, um, we went. I went deer hunting. I think late November, so two or three weeks after chemo and radiation's over, and shot a relatively small sized buck. I mean, had a decent rack on it but the body of the buck wasn't that very big and um it took me an hour and a half to drag this thing 100 yards it was it, i would pull it 10 yards and i would just be gassed and i'd have mm -hmm. to lean against a tree and sit down for about 10 minutes i mean it was it was just it, it was a struggle now you mentioned earlier that the doctors are talking about the percentage chances of it coming back which means for now there's like no evidence of disease is that where you are yeah, so uh, as of uh, four weeks into the four rounds of chemo, uh, they did a scan. They couldn't find any sign of cancer. Um, they did an extra two rounds just to be safe, and then they did uh, a spot radiation on the one spot after surgery. There was one spot that showed signs of cancer. Uh, it was in a lymph node, and so technically it was stage three uh, cancer. And then um, they asked, you know, do can we? should we do radiation or should we not? And I said, well, what's the pros and cons? And, and they said, well, there's always a chance that a single cancer cell survive that chemo thing in that lymph node. And it could spread back. If we do radiation, it would essentially kill um, that lymph node and there'd be no chance of it coming back in that lymph node. Um, and I said, yeah, let's go ahead and move forward. The downside is according to what they tell me is that the stuff that they did to get rid of cancer uh, if I survive into my 60s, would probably give me cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and sure enough, I went through I went to a, a holistic doctor a few months ago and had them do a really in-depth study of my blood work and all this stuff. 
And um, they found that chemo had actually introduced all sorts of toxic metals into my system. Like there's there's metals that your body naturally has and, and it's always low levels or normally low levels. Um, but mine are kind of off the charts right now, which is toxic, like platinum is off the charts. And um, it's just supposedly not good for your body and it will eventually cause your body to develop cancer later. Um, so, but normally people go through chemo and radiation later in life, I mean, normally, um, but we're starting to see younger levels of cancer uh, in, 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 in people across the country. And, um, they've linked mine. My cancer was, uh, supposedly the result, at least in part, uh, by the burn pits in Iraq. When I was a soldier over there, um, they were, uh, burning everything from refrigerators mm. to gasoline to whatever you, you could burn in these burn pits. Um, and the toxic chemicals kind of drifted, um, just drifted up in the atmosphere well at night when the atmosphere drops the smoke and the toxin chemicals don't leave the atmosphere they kind of just drift into your camp and so the the place always smelled um like burning trash and and I never thought twice about it but um we didn't have we didn't have buildings that had like filters on them and stuff like that we had we lived in tents and so um mm. it they're finding that a lot of the young iraq veterans uh, that had been to these bases are coming down with rare and strange cancers. Okay. Um, I was going to ask so, if there's a pattern they picked up on with other guys. Yeah. They just recently packed the, the past the, uh, it's called the PACT Act in Congress, and it's recognizing um, toxic exposures to all veterans, including uh, the Gulf War syndrome guys, the uh, Vietnam War, Agent Orange guys. Um, but the newest one on the list is now us from Ar Iraqi Freedom. And um, my cancer was number two on the list that they known wow. to be uh, as a result. And it's two on the list of this burn pit results. But in, in reality, that the cancer that I have is like 0.02% of hmm. people that have cancer. It's, it's such a rare cancer. What, what is I, it? It's, um, it's called a it, – technically, it's a colon cancer, but it's not the normal type that everybody gets. It's, a, it's called a manic tumor uh, a neuroendocrine uh, cancer that is growing alongside of the or with growing in the normal tumor, mm. um, and so it's it's very strange. They found it very strange to be found in a colon as opposed to the lungs or somewhere else where it's more likely to appear. Um, and so, I, I mean, I went to the James, and the James said they've met one or two people with it. I went to the the Cleveland Clinic, which is you know world renowned cancer center. And they said they've never treated it at all. They've had mm -hmm. one person that they know of, or at least that current, that doctor, um, he's been there many years. And he said, I've only met one patient with this cancer. Um, and he left to a different place to get treatment. So I don't even know what happened to him. Um, so, yeah, very strange, very uh, weird kind of situation to be in. But uh, yeah, it's got to be disorienting for you walking into a place f feeling the effects of cancer and having them say yeah we don't really know much about it i mean that has to be that's to hurt like <laughs> in a weird way deep down right yeah well it's not very comforting that that's for sure um because you know even if it was bad news you'd want to know you know like but they they can't yeah. tell you any news because it's such a rare thing they don't really know what to expect um it, but we, it was it was found in norway um what we were there serving with our mission board and um it you know 
I have a pretty poor opinion at this point of socialized medicine. Hmm. Um, but uh, I had been going to the doctor since April of uh, 2021, I think. And um, I had been asked, you know, I'd, I've been having some digestive issues of what it felt like. And um, it never went away. It would go away for a couple of weeks, but it would come back. And and I said, and I kept going back to the doctor four or five times. I said, there's there's something wrong. You need to check. And they would they would do a blood test. Didn't find anything wrong. Um, one blood test kind of recognized that my iron was a bit low, and they didn't decide to do any further research and study. In hindsight, what I should have done is I should have went to the private side because I do have private hospitals there. Um, but I, you know, I never would have suspected anything this serious. Um, what I was expecting maybe was like an ulcer or, uh, some colitis or something like that. Uh, anyway, long, long, long story short, I went to the hospital and, and, uh, January, I skipped the doctor and just went to the hospital to the ER. And, um, they tried to tell me that I was just constipated and, um, decided to send me home with, uh, actually, no, first they decided, um, just by looking at me, they said, you probably have kidney stones. So we're going to send you home with some antibiotics. And I said, wait a minute. Like, why are you giving me antibiotics when you have, this is just your guess. Like you literally haven't taken any vitals. You're just looking at me and saying, I have kidney stones. And they just wanted to get rid of me is what it, what it was. I was filling a, a ER bed. And, um, I sat there for probably 12 hours arguing with the doctors, trying to get some sort of, uh, scan to uh, confirm this just guess of of uh kidney stones and so they did an ultrasound um and some blood work and didn't find any signs of kidney stones and so they said well it's probably not kidney stones we're going to guess you're constipated now and we're going to give you some laxatives and you can go home with that and at that point i think i was just kind of upset and uh, i just accepted it and left and um it didn't work didn't help uh, about a month later, I come back in the hospital, and at this point, I wasn't able to eat or drink mm. um, without you know vomiting back up. Uh, sorry if that's vulgar for your listeners, no, but hey, um, right. <clears throat> the the um, I went to the same hospital to the same ER, and they wouldn't they didn't want to check me back in. Um, I was in the ER, but they didn't want to check me back into the hospital. And so, uh, well, in the meantime, um, when when I first arrived at the hospital in January. They, um, they, I was vomiting. Um, and so they thought, oh, COVID. So they stick uh, me in kind of this like COVID isolation room where there's like plastic hanging off the walls. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an ET, you know, like there's just very strange stuff and never had an issue with COVID before that. But a week after my hospital visit, I come down with COVID. And so mm -hmm. now I have what I didn't know at the time was was cancer plus COVID and uh, ended up being just a sniffle for me. My wife, I gave it to my wife naturally, and she had a cough for a few months. But um, I go back to the hospital and they did not want to admit me into the hospital and do any more scans. They said, you're just constipated. We promise you. It's what the issue is. And um, thankfully, there was a doctor from Africa there, a, a, a middle-aged lady. I, I don't know if she was doing in Norway, but um, she looked at me and she said, you know, there is something wrong with you. Mm. Like there's something really wrong with you. Uh, she did some tests and to spare the listener, she found out that there was, uh, I was bleeding internally. Um, and uh, she, she fought with the Norwegian doctors, she said, and got me admitted into the hospital. 
And then when I was up there, I had to sit around for three days because, you know, it's the weekend and doctors don't mm-hmm. week work on the weekends in Norway, apparently. And so um waited till Monday. They made it they kind of made it the impression that they they that I was putting them out. But, you know, because they were, you know, doctors, they they had to do it. So they did a scan. They they saw a big bright red area on us in my stomach and they said, well, it's, it's probably just some bad colitis, uh, but we're going to do um, a colonoscopy just to make sure. And, uh, but it's, you know, there's a chance it could be cancer, but probably not. And so I was like, okay. Um, and this, this is a repeated theme in my hospital experience. It's, it's probably, it could be this, but it's probably not, you know? And um, every time they said that it just got worse and worse and worse. And at one point I was like, can you just stop telling me that <laughs> really mm. just stop telling me because i'm just going to expect the worst and be you know but they did they did they did the colonoscopy um uh and uh found out that there was a tumor there and um next thing i know like they took it very serious like the the whole hospital was like at my beck and call at this point and they, they probably um, all felt bad for kicking the can down the road so many times and now it's like oh stink he's yeah he's bad, he's bad. So I had this like I had this like counseling nurse. She was constantly at my side. Well, she was you know down the hall, but she was constantly there. And um, and they're like, you know, we need to do some more testing. But once we do the more testing, um, the, the way it, the way it worked out was this: we, we will, um, we are going to take some more pictures, and some more scans. Unfortunately, you just missed the day that the doctors meet to discuss scans of new patients. So they only meet once a week, apparently. So you need to wait till this was Wednesday. You need to wait till next Wednesday. They'll look at your scans. And then on Friday, we will call you in. So now, now we're nine days away. We'll call you in. We'll look at your scans and and, and tell you like what our suggestion is for treatment, uh, what we're going to do. They're probably going to involve surgery and all this. So now we're nine days away. And they said after that, after you approve, uh, we will give you surgery sometime within uh, three to four weeks, or maybe it was two, two to three weeks. And so I'm looking at like, that's a month, that's a mm-hmm. month before they're going to do anything. And you're still not and able to eat and drink. I'm not able to eat or drink. I'm like, what are you going to do? They were going to, they were going to check me out of the hospital. And, um, I said, that's not good enough. I'm going to go back to the States. And they, oh man, they were really like dead set against me going back to the States. Why? They said that, um, it would delay treatment. And I said, any more than a month? I, I highly doubt it. So I think that was a Wednesday or maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Anyway, I go um, in the night, I go and I start making calls because Norway is six hours ahead. So I start making calls, um, start looking at cancer centers. Uh, some friends of mine down here told me that, uh, you know, we didn't know it was a rare cancer at this point. We just thought it was normal colon cancer. Um, and the James... Uh, here in Columbus is world renowned for their colon cancer care. It's kind of like their specialties and just so happened to be like an hour and 45 minutes from where my parents uh, live, where I grew up. So um, the next morning they had, they had um, the next morning I went to bed that night. Next morning I woke up, we get, I tell the doctor, I said, look, I'm going to try to leave. um, And you keep the ball rolling here just in case I can't get out of the country. Because at the time, if you had any kind of evidence of, ke- of chemo, um, not chemo, um, COVID, COVID, you couldn't get into the United States. And so we had just had COVID 
And so uh, it was, we didn't, we were worried about popping a positive, not being able to get like, cause we, neither of us had the vaccine. So we didn't have ways to get into the country. We're worried about getting stuck in Norway. Uh, so you keep the ball bowling here on the plane. I will call you. <laughs> I said, I will call you that I'm gone. And, and um, uh, long story short on the drive home, we had like a 20 minute drive home from, from the hospital to our house. And on the ride home, I called the James from Norway here in Columbus from Norway. And, Within 30 minutes, I had an appointment date for Monday. This was like a Thursday. I had an appointment date for Monday, a, a tentative surgery date for Wednesday. And so um, they were going to give me surgery. They, they had only talked to me on the phone. Um, I sent them my scans a few hours later uh, through some kind of web link they sent me. And by the end of the night, I had a surgery date for Wednesday. This the same day that the Norwegians were just going to meet and talk about my scans. They had a, they had planned surgery, um, and I called the Norwegian doctor back and I said, "This is my plan. Again, keep the ball rolling, and I'll let you know if I can get out of the country." Um, and uh, and he was just, I remember him being so awestruck, like I, that can't be possible. There's no way they could possibly give you surgery that fast. And then it just dawned on me, like they, you know, there there is definite downsides to to privatized healthcare system like yeah. we have like but there's so the, the upside is so infinitely vast what, um, what i was just thinking about is how often you'll hear in socialized medicine type settings they can get you in and out you can just go and you can get your free health care and <clears throat> whenever you want but in privatized you know you've got to wait forever and you know everybody's grumpy and grouchy and you, you don't never get what you need but what you're explaining is like the exact opposite. Oh, it's the exact opposite. Now, to be fair, if you if you had a cold, uh, socialized medicine is is, is awesome. Mm. You just go in, you get your medicine, you're out. You pay like I think I paid like three dollars for a doctor visit. I mean, it really is sweet. At, on the downside is if you have something wrong with you, um, good luck. I knew a guy that he 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 broke his leg skiing. And uh, he was just, he lived about a couple, about an hour north of me um, in Norway. He broke his leg skiing. It wasn't like a compound fracture, which was extremely obvious, but he heard the snap and he went to the doctors and they didn't want to do an x-ray because that was a waste of money. So they gave him uh, Motrin, I think he said, and he said, if it still hurts in two weeks, come back and we'll take it an x-ray. Sure enough, they comes back two weeks later. It is broken. He He wasn't, you know. It wasn't in his mind. He broke his leg and they decided to do a x-ray and then they put him in a cast. But he sat around for two weeks and uh, just because they didn't want to waste the money of an x-ray. Um, and so, there, yeah, there are definite, definite downsides. If you have mm. something seriously wrong with you, you have to. And the Norwegians will even tell you, like, you have to argue with your doctor because a doctor doesn't want to you know, be the one that's constantly sending people for more procedures. And, and that's um, what we want as patients is to go in and argue, <clears throat> have to argue with our doctor for treatment. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. that makes us feel real yeah. confident in the whole, whole thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so that they follow through on that surgery. Did that end up happening then the date that you said over the phone, you came back to Ohio and got the surgery that quick. Yeah. So we, we went and found like the cheapest place we could find to give a COVID test, not because we were, we were wanting to save money, but because we figured that would, be the best chance of getting a positive or a positive <laughs> or I guess a negative. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we, we got a negative test and, and we knew some, we knew some doctors in Norway that also signed, uh, cause we, you know, we, we had some at home tests that confirmed we had COVID, but we didn't go to the doctor and, and get it confirmed through like an official test or something like that. We had the at home tests that were free across Norway. 
Um, and uh, long story short, we we get through the airport. Um, we actually did the uh, handicap kind of like service because I was so weak at this point, not being able to eat or drink for like better part of three or four days outside of some IVs that they that they gave me at the hospital. I was so physically weak, and this was on you know th- two or three months of a limited diet because. What had happened was the tumor in my large intestine had completely sealed off the large intestine. Mm. Like no food was barely only liquid was getting through. And so it was it was causing a lot of pain. And the and the danger, they said, was at any moment your intestine could burst and you would have like uh you'd have to have an emergency surgery. And an emergency surgery, they don't take the care of removing the tumor that they would mm-hmm. when you had a specifically cancer surgery, I guess. Um so yeah, so long story short, we we get back uh, to Columbus. Um, we took the handicap. You know, they I got wheeled through all the airports. Without that, I would probably wouldn't have made it throughout the airports on time. Um, and, and so we get through Amsterdam, get through I think it was uh, it was either Chicago or, or someplace. We get through all of them. And um, real quick, what what month and year are we in? <clears throat> so this would have been January of twenty. I'm sorry, February of 2022. So the end of February. Okay. I think, and you got kids with you at this point too? No, my wife and I have thus far been unable to have kids. Well, we have a few that uh, we lost in miscarriages. So, uh, when, when people ask if we have kids, we usually just say yes, but, uh, but, uh, they're, 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 they're gone. Um, so, uh, just trying to get the picture in my head of what's going on. So it is, especially because it's Europe, you got COVID madness, even though we're two years removed from, COVID at that point, but still yeah. probably COVID crazy. And your wife yeah. is wheeling you around in a wheelchair through right, right. Yeah. Well, the, the wife was following. They had an attendant uh, to mm-hmm. do it. Um, but it, it is very great for anybody that has issues um, with airport travel. I highly recommend that as a route. Fantastic. You didn't have to go. Th- you had your own passport control. Uh-huh. You had your own like. I mean, so they drove me outside of the airport on a bus. <laughs> um, so it was it was fantastic. It, it's worth um, stubbing your toe before you travel, just to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll say this: <laughs> they technically are not able, and they don't ask you what's wrong with you. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, I didn't have to prove that I had anything wrong. I mean, wow. My family it, says they, 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 they have employees there ready to help. I guess right. So it doesn't. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And it's 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 absolutely fantastic. And without that, we would not have made our gates because uh, we were running late. But I'll say this about Norway and COVID: they had an outstanding response to COVID. They 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 were a little bit like Sweden, where they didn't really do much. Um, but the thing about Norway is, if the government says to do something, most Norwegians do it. So one year after after the holidays, um, the Norwegian government said, "Don't have anybody in your home in like January, February, and March, something like that." And no one did. I mean, it wasn't a law. They didn't say you ha- you you can't do it, but no one did simply because the government said hmm. that you shouldn't. And I, it, you know, and so that's why it worked very well for them. They didn't. I mean, we had salad bars still open in grocery stores. We had these like uh, candy dispensers where you could just take one of those like uh, scoops and grab your own uh, loose mm-hmm. candy. I mean, this was during COVID, and and they just they trust each other. The Norwegians trust their government to the point where uh, they just essentially do whatever they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was hard to it was I was trying to explain to the Norwegians how Americans kind of look at that. I said, you know, depending on who's in who's in office, if the president says to do something, there's half the country that's not going to do it simply because they were told to do it. Um, and they they can't fathom how Americans wow. are like that, and we can't yeah. fathom how they're like the way way they are. 
Um, but yeah, we make it through the we make it through the airports. Everything's uh, everything worked fine as far as travel. We get into Columbus on I want to say Saturday. It might be Friday night, but Saturday sometime Friday night, Saturday, and uh, I basically sit in the hotel. At this point, I'm able to drink some liquids again because um, the liquids are still making it through. So I'm I'm basically on those uh, insurer shakes and 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 water and juice and stuff and. Um, and meet with the doctor on Monday. They do another MRI just to confirm all the scans that they had from Norway. Um, and then checked me in on Tuesday and I had surgery on Wednesday. I mean, it was, it was quick. Wow. And, the, and quick. the surgery was to remove that tumor that they found. Yeah. So they removed uh, a large, about on a third of my large intestine, I think. And they re reattached the large intestine to the small intestine. Um, and so uh, because it was on the right side as opposed to the left, I didn't have to t wear any colostomy bags or anything like that. It was um, but it, it is so strange how in a major surgery like that, like it takes two or three days to get even like walking normally again. Mm. You, you know, you, you, they get you up to walk like a few hours after surgery and you have this walker and I'm, I'm 37 at the time and and. And I have this walker and I'm barely able to take like three inch steps on this walker. And oh, it's so humbling. So, so humbling. Yeah, that is um, the uh, probably the definition of invasive surgery, right? I mean, that is that is splitting yeah. you open and getting <clears throat> down into the guts. Uh, yeah. Wow. And, suppo and supposedly the tumor was so large that the normal incision, they had to like double it just oh. to get it out. Um, but the way that I guess the way they did it was they, they put it in a bag while it's still inside of you and then they cut it out uh, so that if you would just cut it out, cancer cells could leak. Mm. Um, and so they, they kind of, they do a very safe job. And, and, um, and then I had a six, six week recovery at home. Uh, that's when all the, you know, we, we, we were hoping for the best. Um, and that's when all the reports started coming in of, uh, the biopsies of the cancer itself, uh, how straight, how rare, um, sorry, rare and strange of a cancer it was. Um, naturally we go to Google, um, Google has a very, very dark opinion of this type of cancer because, again, it's so rare and it normally appears in people in their 70s and 80s. And so uh, because of that, there's not very good statistics of the people that do have it. Um, and so, you know, we're freaking, you know, freaking out and um, and go to the doctor and, and the doctor doesn't give us. I mean, that first doctor visit was not very hopeful not very hopeful at all. Um, and then, uh, we started chemo in April of 2022, very harsh chemo. Um, and yeah, it, it was, uh, from April to October, November was basically three weeks on, uh, three weeks, one three day thing of chemo and three weeks later it would start again. So every three weeks you're getting chemo, uh, every now and then you get a scan and then they did spot radiation. Um, but, you know, in all this, um, you know, I, I don't want to make it just so um, naturalistic, but um, the Lord has been so gracious to us in, in everything. Um, with that African doctor there at the hospital, if it wasn't for her, um, I might have been upset at the Norwegians and then went back home. And yeah. then it might have delayed my finding the tumor and treatment because colon cancer in 30 year old 30 ish year old males extremely rare extremely extremely rare um i have known of the burn pits issue that way but it's mostly coming in as like 
what's been reported anyway, since I didn't study it too de- in depth, it was mostly brain tumors and lung tumors and stuff mm-hmm. like this. Never would have thought of colon cancers uh, or any kind of gastrointestinal cancer. Um, but that apparently is number two on the list. <clears throat> and so the Lord has been gracious to that. It was funny. And I got diagnosed in January uh, or February of 2022. In November of 2021, I was asked to preach at a, at a conference in Norway. And the, the sermon I was given to preach was the sovereignty of God over all of life. And so I remember because um, they, they keep you awake during the colonoscopy. You don't get a, you don't get any medication in Norway for a colonoscopy. Mm. It's the most awkward experience. You have the doctors and the nurses, uh, and they're all kind of fascinated that you're American. So they're asking you question and, and, uh, you're like, this is not the time or the yeah, place. That, <laughs> like, <laughs> that is wild. Uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And I remember them, they, they <laughs> wheeled, they wheeled me out into the hallway after they had discovered the tumor. And they didn't say a thing. They just kind of wheeled you outside the door. And there was an orderly that was supposed to come take you back to your room. And uh, they left me there for an hour. And it was just this hour of, of processing everything that's mm. happened. You know, we spent, because Norway is one of the most expensive countries in the world, we spent the better part of four years raising support to get here. And then we we get to Norway and we had thought that we had come to um serve with a church of about 50 people and we were going to just step into an already thriving church and and it was going to just be a blessing to work with them and, and it was a blessing but what we didn't know that there was fault lines in that church that for whatever reason mm. uh when we arrived in norway while we were still in quarantine our 10-day quarantine from from the flight over did the, the church decides to split and it took a few months because everything Norwegians do is slow, um, but it took a few months. But eventually, the church essentially split four different ways. So, and look, before we uh, go sure. there, I'm just curious: how does an Ohio boy, uh, <clears throat> Iraq war veteran, end up in Norway in the first place? What? How did that happen? Yeah, um, really, it was towards the end of my military career um i only spent six years and i was in the united states air force um and so when when we say iraq veteran my my experience was was very um mellow compared to most marines and armies and guys like that well although there's short term but but not long term as we're finding out right 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 uh so i I don't want to give the impression that that you know that i was out slinging lead down down in the valleys and stuff um but uh, my job was communications. I was kind of a, a communications expert. Um, my first tour in Iraq, I, I mainly uh, kept the radios working for for guys. Uh, some people in my unit uh, provided the communications link for the predator drones and stuff like that. Um, and so, but my main job was um, I'm not so much of a techie guy, so I did more of the manual labor. I'd climb the towers, uh, change light bulbs on the top so helicopters wouldn't mm-hmm. crash into them. I, I kept radios working, TVs working, stuff like that. Um, you, do so you like that? You enjoy I, enjoy, I enjoyed the tower climbing more than I thought I would. Um, <laughs> I it, would it hate was, it, man. I would, I would not do well with that. <laughs> yeah, like the the reason most people didn't want to do it was because it was um, they're afraid of heights, obviously. Yeah, right. Uh, and I, I think I was just young enough where. I think I'm more I'm more afraid of heights now, but I'm not really. But I'm I'm more anxious on heights than I was then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, basically, I was one of the few people in the unit that was 
not afraid of heights. And, and, um, they asked if I would be willing to do it. I said, sure. And, uh, I guess they had a shortage of people, uh, climbing that they're actually certified so they kind of created a certification for me i wasn't i wasn't officially certified i couldn't come back to the states and climb towers um but it was something i did there i very i enjoyed it very much um and uh uh we did we did radios i worked on the radios and um and, and various things uh so i i enjoyed that very much my second time i came to iraq about i think it was like 12 months later um 15 months later I was somehow made it into the, uh, into the armory. And so I was like in the armory. So that was, that was very boring actually. Um, but it was, it wasn't bad. So, um, but yeah, so after, towards the end of my military career, I was kind of, um, I don't know, dissatisfied. Maybe I've, I've always been kind of a guy that's been dissatisfied with hmm. kind of staying in one place too long. I don't, I don't know why that's the case. Um, but, uh, you know, being young, I was only, had I go to do it again, I, I probably would have stayed in at the very least in the garden reserve. Uh, but the grass is always greener. I thought as a 23 year old and, and decided to, to get out of the military. And so, uh, I, I got out honorable discharge. There's, you know, that's kind of turning the page. Um, ironically, most of the guys that I was in with, some of the guys that I even was that would train me and guys that I've trained are they're now retiring from the military because it's been 20 years. Mm. Um, and so that that's kind of fun to see them retiring. Um, a lot of them joined the Space Force, actually, when that opened up. Oh, wow. Um, so but uh, I, I started taking some Bible classes, actually, because uh, it was one of the things that there was a certain experience that you have in Iraq. You know, uh, our our base would be mortared, I don't know, once or twice a week, something like that uh, from the from the terrorists outside in the town called Al-Nazaria. They'd sit on the. They would use, um, we we allowed them to explore our trash. They could have our trash from the base, the, the citizens of the town, and they would take stuff. And then some of them would take stuff and turn them into uh, things to, to kill us with. <laughs> Just so, like they would re recycle metals and stuff? So, yeah. So huh. what, what we found, uh, we, we found a, uh, well, I'd say we, uh, some of the Australian army, I think, found uh, where they were launching mortars off with. Uh, and the mortars, I think they were getting from Iran. Um, uh, I think they confirmed that. Uh, but the what they would steal from us is they would not steal, but they would take from us from our trash is our old bed frames. And so they had these like metal rails now. Mm -hmm. And then they would take uh, truck jacks or jacks off the like you jack up your truck to change a tire. And that was their elevation device. And so they would crank this, this truck jack up and then they would shoot off mortars. And then the next day they would send, uh, we, we, uh, every day we'd brought in workers onto the base, um, to, to fill sandbags, to clean, to, to whatever the case may be, but you couldn't be a worker on our base until you had checked with the Taliban, because if they found out that you were working on an American installation in Iraq without checking with them, they would kill you and your entire family. Mm. Um, and so for whatever reason. The U.S. military knows this, but still allows these people onto the base to do the work. Almost um, like uh, dealing with children or something. You, you just give them a little bit of leeway because they're not you're not super scared of them. And so you just let them play with a few things that you don't consider that dangerous and <laughs> let them do their thing. Is that kind of how that went went down? I, I guess we, one, one of my jobs, uh, I had a two week gig where I had to watch a bunch of these guys coming in. You know, you 
you'd, you'd have a rifle and you'd basically be a bodyguard for them, not to keep them safe, but you know, just in case they decided to turn. Yeah, if they went um, sideways it, or something, you'd correct right. them. Right. It, it was, uh, but at the same time, it, I, you kind of sympathize for them because they may not want, you know, to do what the Taliban was wanting them to do, but they don't really have a choice because the United States is not going to protect them in their homes in the night in, mm -hmm. in, in town. And so they don't really have a choice. It, it's kind of a rock in a hard place. So I, I feel I did feel bad for them at the same time. But at the same time, you, you can't you can't um, you can't allow them to be what they would do is they would go in there and they had a, they must have had a nice schematic of the base because they would basically tell um, the the whoever was shooting off the mortars, hey, you missed by this much. You missed. By, you know. And so then the next night they would change the elevation and they would you know try again. Um, and they got to be decently good. My second tour, the the I think it was the army had just built um, a brand new gym. Like they were all the all the guys would be um, working out in, and that gym, the size it was, you could probably have fifty to one hundred people there in any time, any one time. And uh, thankfully for the for us, they they blew it up. They they hit it direct hit with a mortar. Um, Two days prior to actually moving all the equipment in, had they wait, had they waited a week, they could have probably killed dozens of people inside that. Um, but they they blew it up too soon. Crazy. So anyway, anyway, I don't know how I got on that. Um, but uh, one of the things I was doing towards the end of of my military career was getting into Bible classes. Oh yeah, that's why because uh, I had a really one time a mortar came pretty close. Um, and it just got me thinking, you know, um, what would have happened if I had walked, you know, five minutes earlier or had, yeah. had it land, had it landed, you know, 50, you know, 20 meters to the right or something. Um, and so then, then I started reconsidering, um, my, my faith that I had as a child. Um, I'm not real sure, um, when I was saved as a child, I, I made a profession of faith at five and again at nine. Um, basically, anytime we had an evangelist that would come in and 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 tell you all you're going to hell, mm. um, we would we would all get saved again because that was our theology. Uh, and it sounds like a Baptist setting. Am I close? Yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. independent <laughs> fundamental. Yeah, yeah, independent <laughs> fundamental Baptist. Uh, so anytime we went to camp, uh, anytime we had a, an evangelist come in, uh, especially if he had very mean and scary looking charts, uh, we would all get saved again. And uh, mm -hmm. so th the way I figure is, is that um, I, I think the time at nine was genuine, but I was never taught discipline. I was never taught uh, how to grow, how to be sanctified. Uh, it was all this pray a prayer, get your ticket check type of an idea. And um, so even though I, I genuinely trusted in Christ for for salvation, um, it was never taught to me or, or I, you know, even basic Bible study, which I'm sure we'll get into the hermeneutics issue later, but even basic Bible study wasn't emphasized. And so I was a, at, at best, I was a very um, uh, immature, shallow believer. Mm. Um, but that, that time in a, in a rock when, when that mortar came close was, uh, that was kind of the wake up call that mm. I needed. Uh, there had been times earlier, um, through various other deployments, but this one mainly was like, okay, I, I really need to figure this out. Because were you exercising your faith, faith at all whenever you were in Iraq? Were you I, going to like chapel 
things, <clears throat> uh, having conversations with other believers, or was it right. just totally dormant? No, there, there was there was a period of about a year and a half where I was relatively dormant. Nothing was nothing was ever guilt free. Mm. There was always conviction. Um, but it was so, and it wasn't even that the church had offended me. I'm not a recovering fundamentalist or anything like that. It was just, it was just that, um, I had been so sheltered from the world that when I got into the world, that what the world had to offer was fun. Mm. It, it, it was fun. Um, and I think that's something that devalued at the, at, at my church growing up was, oh, sin is terrible. Sin is terrible. Not necessarily. You know, there, there's, there's. There is a lust after the world that 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 is real, and and um, and I I kind of went into that, and again, never like, never. Just to clarify, you're saying that the like the church was saying all sin is just makes makes you miserable, and, and right. you're saying no, you were finding out that it's actually kind of fun. Initially, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there there is a truth to that that it does. It does lead. Its ultimate conclusion is misery. Mm -hmm. um, but going out drinking with your friends is fun. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a reason why people do it. Right, right. Um, and so, what? I, what I, I kind of felt like, you know, this is all fun. This can't be bad. Um, and I didn't really. I don't ever remember thinking. Uh, I knew it was wrong, but I don't ever remember thinking like. Um, that God is disappointed in me or, or, or angry at me or anything like that. It was just, I was so living for myself. That's the main idea. I was living for myself very selfishly. Um, and then just because it was never guilt-free, because there was always conviction there, I think each time I did it, it would become less and less fun. Mm. Um, and eventually I remember having, before the Iraq experience, I had this moment, uh, I think we were in Honduras at the time. And I just remember having this moment of like, you know what? I, I really got to know if, if I if I am a believer and I'm a Christian, um, I shouldn't be doing these things. And if I'm not, then I then I should just go into them full full heartedly mm -hmm. and 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 not care what you know. Kind of kind of try to erase all this conviction that I have because mm -hmm. at this point neither of them was fun. You know, <laughs> I would go I would go back to a church and then I would just be like, man, I'd really wish I was out drinking with my friends. But then I'd go out drinking with my friends and I was like, ah, man, I just really not having fun doing this anymore. It's just, it goes back to that chronic uh, discontentment that you say you have. Yeah. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit, I would say. And, uh, so long story short, I, I was like, you know what I, I need, I, I need to figure this out. And so I rolled in and, and the, the way you figure it out, in my opinion, at that point was not to listen to anybody was to, to, to go and, and really determine what I believed. Uh, and so I picked up a Bible, started reading. At the time, I'm still King James only because that's what I've always mm -hmm. been taught, right? You know, all those NIVs and ESVs and all those heresies. So um, I'm, I'm reading the King James Version and I'm like, ah, oh, man, uh, it's a bit difficult. I'll, I'll admit at the time, it's a bit difficult to really understand. Um, you know, I'm reading classics at the time, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, stuff like that, and started taking a couple Bible study. It was uh, um, well, the Introduction to the Bible courses. Uh, New Testament. I remember it was a school in Oklahoma. I was stationed in Oklahoma primarily. And um, it was, I think it was Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, took a, a course on New Testament introduction. And it's just utterly fascinating to me. Mm. Um, I guess I never had just never thought about the, you know, the, the books of the Bible were written in, 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 a, in a time. 
and a place. And what really hooked me was the professor had a good two or three day session on how Alexander the Great did more for the New Testament setting than possibly anybody else Mm -hmm. in history. And uh, just so fascinating to see, because I was always a lover of history, how history kind of tied into to to Bible. And And uh, that's a single at this time. Yeah, I, I didn't get married until much later um, okay married at married at 31 uh, so, so, so you was, had all all your time here where you could just dive in yeah 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 so that started eating away at me was I, I really had this desire to continue this studying the bible um i think that dissatisfaction with the military was 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 kind of building i enjoyed the military i loved it um uh, but the longer i was in the more i was dissatisfied maybe with what i was doing um that there were, I guess the way to say it, there had to be something more. Um, and so left again, if I had to do it, I would have stayed in at least in the garden reserves while I was going through school. But, um, I left. And at this point, you know, again, I'm, I'm a very raw around the edges person. Uh, the military kind of culture does that to you. It, it, it um, I'm one of my first jobs afterwards, uh, my boss coming to me and thankfully her dad had been a Marine. So she kind of understood me. Um, but she's like, name, you can't talk to people like that. <laughs> it's like, it's like well, what do you, what do you mean? It's like, you just can't say those type of things in, in the typical work environment. Cause it's not how it's done here. And, like, oh. and it kind of dawned on me that, that I, you know, had been changed a lot by the military culture. Um, and uh like what, I mean, what kind of stuff just like a straight shooter that kind that, of... that would be that would be one um okay. like so there, there, i remember this this person came up to me with an idea and and I, I like that person and i still have friends with that person today but i remember just saying like no that's i just said i think it was, this is what i exactly said that's stupid man we don't need to be doing that like that yeah. was just i called his idea stupid which apparently is is akin to calling him stupid so he uh-huh. went and complained to the boss and the boss pulled me i mean it's just this big this is big thing uh, and then there was a there was a, a young lady that I was working next to reminded me a lot of my sister and there was a guy I was friends with the, at the college and I was like you'd be a you and him would be a good a good match and she was like oh I, th- I appreciate that but I have a boyfriend I was like well I can fix that <laughs> I just I just kind of I kind of said that and oh man like that was mm-hmm. yeah obviously I was joking that was just mm-hmm. a passive aggressive way of saying oh good for you you know never mind uh, but that was not the way. To say that apparently and it, and it was not appreciated it. by the by the workplace right 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 so uh it wasn't it wasn't overtly bad things or anything like that but um and and i think at the time i i, I was still i'm still young at the time i was still 20 something and and young by our standards today um you know 200 years ago i was halfway through my life <laughs> right uh but um anyway uh i i leave and I, I didn't know what seminary was good. I mean, my IFB background told me like Jack Hiles told me, oh, this stuff like this, Hiles Anderson College or Pensacola, or P- Pensacola Christian College. Yes, yeah, and I'll be kind to them. That's where my wife uh, went to school because she's also IFB that I found out later. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I just I was done with the with the standards. I think um, I remember there was a school in Oklahoma that I thought about going to, and uh, they told me that. Um, that I had to dress a certain way that I couldn't date anybody unless they had approved it. And I mean, it was just, just all these rules. And I think I was just done with that, especially coming out of the military. I was just done with that. And I wanted, um, I wanted to just be myself in a sense of, uh, 
no one telling me what to do. And I wanted to just study. Um, and so I, I would probably, it's not the worst choice of school, but I'd probably change it if I, if I could mm -hmm. today. Um, but at the time they were very military, they still are very military friendly, but I went to Liberty university. Okay. Um, and one of the, the clinchers was that um, they said, hey, you know, uh, with using the GI Bill, you could go through aviation school as well at the same time you're going through Bible school. And I said, you mean the military will or the VA will pay for me how to learn how to fly a plane? They're like, yeah. And so I decided to do that double major. That was like the hook in because there's a lot of uh, the, the aviation department was basically staffed by old um, pilots in the mm -hmm. military. Um, and so I felt at home there with them. And so, yeah, it was, it was double majored in biblical studies and, uh, I think it was missionary aviation, I want to say, um, and did a few years of that. And then, uh, when I was near graduating, I kind of had to make a choice, which, which route you want to go. And, um, I wasn't interested in being an airline pilot or anything like that. So I was more considering the, the missionary route. Um, but come to find out it's, uh, there's always a need for missionary pilots, but the need is not as great because the, the largest organization at the time said they were only hiring one or two new pilots a year. Hmm. And um, we had like 50 pilots in our school. They were all wanting to go to missions wow. aviation. And so um, I decided to kind of pursue the master's degree or seminary um, as opposed to going through aviation. So I think I dropped my AV cause I had grad, I filled the credits for my biblical studies degree faster than I filled them for my aviation degree. So I think I'm three credits or three classes <laughs> short of a, of an aviation degree. Um, but then I, I finished my bachelor's, went straight into seminary and, so, uh, wait, real quick, uh, you have a pilot's license. Yeah. 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 Okay. I got it. Cool. I got a private's pilot's license. Um, it's it's there's there's it's one of the most fun things I've ever done. Um, there's no feeling like being in a plane by yourself piloting. Um, Again, the heights thing. I, I don't yeah. know. I can, <laughs> a commercial is a bit of a stretch for me, so I can't really imagine yeah. doing that. But but you know, like I, I was, I'm more afraid of flying now than I ever was then. Hmm. Uh, and, and the reason is like now that you know how how easily things could go wrong, um, and then. I, I know I know people that I went to school with that are now pilots in in the industry, and you're just thinking like, I wouldn't if I saw that dude on my plane, I would walk off the plane because I know that guy, mm. and I, I don't want him piloting me. Um, and so yeah, it just kind of dawned on me that you know there's there's poorly trained in the same way that there is uh, bad pastors and good pastors. There are bad pilots and good pilots. There are bad doctors and good doctors and and so that that's one of the things I learned back then. But uh, yeah, so I have a private pilot's license. I was half, I mean, I was most of the way done with my um, IFR rating, the instrument rating, but uh, that's when I had to make a decision to graduate or continue aviation. Yeah. So um, I haven't used it since. Uh, the last time I flown was 2013. Um, and I kind of considered it was fun to do, but I'm not interested in paying the amount of money that it takes to, to do that now to continue that. So uh, that was fun. And um Went, went straight into Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, um, essentially went, uh, I, took a, I think it was a 72-hour MDiv. Um, I, I, was poor, I was poor at choosing classes at the right time, and so I, I was five classes away, I think, from graduating with my MDiv, and I had, I think it was three Hebrew classes and, and 
two Greek classes. So it was it was either going to be a really bad semester, uh, but I don't I don't even know if you could do them all in the same semester because they kind of built off one another. Mm. Uh, so I was probably looking at another year at least in in seminary, or again there was that kind of thing where like dissatisfaction dissatisfaction with where I was, um, and I was I was kind of wanting to move on to the next page, and so they offered to cash me out with a sixty hour master's degree. Um, I don't know if that was a wise decision or not, but mm -hmm. I, I took it and graduated. And around that time, I was being kind of recruited by various agencies to to plant churches and do this stuff. So, uh, what, what kind of churches were you going to while you were doing the Liberty thing? Have you did you switch out of uh, the IFB world and start dabbling in the <clears throat> SBC world? Uh, so when I when I was in the military and after that experience in Iraq, I came back to Oklahoma and. I, I decided I was going to go to the first church I saw. And so as I drove out of the base once. <laughs> okay, Je again, Jephthah with this sacrificial yeah, yeah, vow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, this is my knowledge level at the time, right? Uh, so I, I'm like, I'm going, it ends up happening. I end up going to a relatively large a Southern Baptist church. I was okay. the first one. It was right outside the gate of our church or, or the base. And so I went there and ended up being a really good time. Um, uh, met a lot of great friends there. Um, the Bible study and the Sunday school class I was in was far more impactful in my life than maybe the pastors were. So I never really got involved because the, the nature of my job with the military was I was gone all the time. Hmm. Um, I'd be back for two or three months and I'd be gone for two or three months, whether you're training or whether you're deploying or whatnot. Um, but so that, that kind of opened me up to, I remember getting Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, hmm reading through that. And it's like, I've never been taught this. I've wow. never, I mean, yeah. and just this theology in general, I've never been taught at best. It was, you know, read, read your Bible through in a year. Even if you don't understand it, you get to check that off. Um, and so I remember going through his systematic theology and just think this is great. Uh, that was the first time I started um, hearing names like, like John MacArthur or John Piper, or, I mean, you name it. I was at one point in time, I was, going to sam storm's church uh yeah that's it that was there I, I, in uh, oklahoma yeah i forgot about that yep bridgeway i think it was called um and that was the time he was having that evening of eschatology with with doug wilson and john, john piper, piper and jim hamilton hamilton yeah that's right yeah. and uh I, cause I remember sam storms getting up and saying like hey uh we're gonna have this discussion at john piper's church and at the time i was like I don't know who you are. I don't know who John Piper is. So I started really um, finding out about all these people. And, and and I would check with my IFB pastors that I grew up with, and they would always warn me, like, you don't want to be listening to John MacArthur. He's crazy. You know, stuff like this. And, and so I'm evaluating some stuff. And and, um, and so as I get into seminary, um, start, again, learning more about theology and 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 I don't know where you stand on the doctrines of grace or anything like that, but uh, um, that's when I realized that again, everybody that was Calvinistic were heretics uh, mm -hmm. according to the view that I grew up in, and and then I started realizing that all the people that they had told me to read, even my IFB churches, John Bunyan, um, Spurgeon, all these guys were heretics, and so I was like, why are you telling me to read the stuff that you? And it, and it just dawned on me one day that that uh, that I was a Calvinist. It was kind of a depressing day, actually, because um, I would just I just kind of dawned on me like, yeah, I, I believe in uh, the depravity of man. I believe uh, all these doctrines of grace truths. I, I, I yeah, I see them in Scripture. That's what, of course. And but then it kind of dawned on me that oh no, I'm a heretic. You know, <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm going right. I'm going through this, and um, 
And and that to be fair, that wasn't even Liberty's fault. That was just personal study because uh, I I think at best Liberty would be considered a a three and a half point mm-hmm. doctrinal school. Um, but uh, yeah, so it you know through all that experience, um, then it became I, when I went to Liberty, I started going to uh, Thomas Road that that church that kind of built off of it. Um, and I was just helping in. I was just trying to get plugged in again. Was, I'm was very Thomas Road where Jerry Falwell Sr. was, right? And then at okay. the time when I was there, I think he's still there. Uh, Jonathan Falwell, his son, took over. Okay. Uh, so I was going, I was just getting back in the church, honestly. Getting, I mean, outside of that, by nature, kind of a nominal existence in Oklahoma because I was always gone on deployments and stuff. Um, getting back into being a regular attender at church, getting involved in teaching Sunday school, um. And, and doing things like this. Uh, then at some point, there was a church nearby in what's called Big Island. I think it technically was a Southern Baptist church. Um, they asked if I would come lead their youth group. And so while going through seminary, I started uh, doing that ministry. And um, it wasn't too long before seminary was was over and, and uh, wanting to know what, what I would do. I was still single and I was still young. Uh, my, my interest was preaching and teaching. Um, and then it just kind of realized that, you know, as a, as a single man, especially pastor roles are very difficult because of, um, you, you have a limit of your understanding of family involved, family dynamics and stuff like that. Um, and then people just look at you differently when you're mm-hmm. not married, when oh, you're yeah. a single man, they look at you, you could be one of the wisest men in the world and you're still going to be considered immature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because you're single, honestly. And, um, whether fair or unfair. Um, but then we, uh, a, a missionary friend of mine, he's now my pastor here at my sending church. Um, he, uh, he was at time a missionary with the ABWE, the association of Baptist for world evangelism. Um, he was a missionary with them to England had been so for 30 years. His parents were ailing. So he had come back. Um, and he had said, won't you consider, Western Europe and missions because they, they, you know, what Western Europe needs is faithful, biblical teaching and preaching. And uh, even though you're single, you could work alongside of Norwegian pastors and stuff like this. And, and so that led me into ABWE. And um, what attracted me to Norway is that it's a very, uh, it is a very needed mission field and there is not a lot of faithful work going on there. Um, And so that's what led me to Norway, raise support, uh, when I was raising support, uh, I went to one IFB church, actually, and um, that's where I met my future brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And uh, the, the the wife, Amber, she kept um, looking at me very strangely throughout this whole missions conference. And th- I mean, it was awkward, just very awkward. And and uh, have I, you told her this or is this going to be? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, oh, this, okay. this, this is this is definitely. Yeah, this is, you know, you know, she knows this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was playing with they had three kids and I was they had four now but they had the time they had three and I was playing with their kids and I've always been you know good with kids and and so she, on the I think the next to last day or the d- last day of the conference they they approached me Amber and her husband JP they approached me and said um, we have a sister back in Missouri that we'd really like to tell about you and and uh, introduce you guys if if okay and I said yeah sure you know why not and so they went home and uh, told Aaron about me and. We started talking on the phone, and six months later, we were married. Wow! Uh, so, so that's how I met Aaron, my wife, and um, 
yeah, since then it's been a, it's been a whirlwind, man. So, we so were in... she joined your life while you were already on the track to Norway. Yes, I, that was my my first question to her actually in an email. It's like, are you open to going to Norway? Because if not, there's no reason for me to talk to you. Uh-huh. I mean, I it just and um, she responds by saying like, I've heard it's cold there. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and uh, yeah, I said yep, but they make very good coats. You know, like yeah. it's, that was kind of like the the start of our conversation. And um, come to find out that that the, one of the reasons Amber and JP uh, had thought I'd be a good fit for her is because she was also going through her own post IFB struggle mm-hmm. uh, with with faith and and. Um, currently she, she was holding to the doctrines of grace as well. And, 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 um, so we thought, you know, that she thought, or they thought I would be a good fit for her. And, and sure enough, we were, we were, we were a great fit. We got married six months later and, uh, just lots of good stories about meeting her family for the first time in Missouri. And, and, uh, well, uh, yeah, I, so I'm curious the dynamic, cause I mean, your name is Nahum, so you have to have Christian parents, right? I mean, there's just no <laughs> way you, you get that name without Christian parents. Uh, right. and you were in the IFB world growing up. She was right. in the IFB world growing up. Uh, presumably she has IFB type parents and you both kind of moved out of that world, became Calvinists and mm. uh, have deviated in your views of, of certain things though, obviously still Baptist. What's your mm. relationship like with your families there? Good. And, and again, part of it is because, and I won't say this is across the board, although it's more typical than it should be. Uh, most IFB participants don't really know what they believe. Mm. They know what they're they know what they're against. Um, mm. um, but I I I have I've preached John ten before, very early on when I was going when I was going through my own kind of uh, transition. I should that's a bad word to say nowadays, but when I was going through <laughs> uh, when I was going through, yeah, kind of you like, didn't used to be Natalie O'Brien, did you? <laughs> no, no. Um, so going kind of, I was preaching through John 10 and I wasn't using the, cause I didn't know them at the time, but I was, I was using words that weren't, you know, your typical tulip words. Um, because I didn't, I didn't really know those at the time. I, to this day, I, I, I haven't really, um, well, okay. So I've, now I've studied a lot of authors, uh, but at that time I had not studied very many, um, known Calvinistic authors at, the, the most I had done is I had I had started reading um, Lloyd Jones long before mm-hmm. I realized who he was, uh, and I started I had, when I was in the military I would listen to John MacArthur from time to time because he was always on the radio. Again, no idea who he was, his background, his theology, and like that. I would just listen to him. Um, and so, uh, as I was preaching through John ten, I re- I realized later that what I had preached was very Calvinistic, very doctrines of grace, and the church I was preaching it in were all amening me. Everyone was amening me, and no one understood what I was saying. Um, I, in fact, I had a woman come up to me, and she was like, "Are you? Are you like very softly? Are are you a Calvinist?" And <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, "I think so." She's like, "I am too." <laughs> I said, "Wow, and like I a said, secret society." Yeah, and I was like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> She's like, "Oh, my husband's IFB." No, but you know, in in some ways, I'd still consider myself independent. I would still consider myself fundamental, yeah. at least by the by the. Uh, the historic definition of fundamental, the fundamentals of the faith. Um, and then I would still consider myself Baptist, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, our, our, I think our parents think we're a little bit weird. Uh, I think that would be some ways. Cause um, one of the things that's changed is, is 
how we approach certain situations. Like, um, I'm not so, I'm not into attractional evangelism. Um, I'm not into, uh, you know, sometimes our theology affects the way we, we work. So, um, uh, for instance, my, my church here recently, they're sending church. Uh, uh, I started somewhat interim pastoring and preaching at a local supporting church here, uh, since January. So I'm not longer in my sending church. Um, but uh, they 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 would do stuff like um, Halloween things and stuff like that, and and I'm I'm just not into that. I, I just I don't like find the them judgment dangerous. house type stuff. Yeah, stuff like that. I just don't. And not, again, I'm not going to say that it's it's wrong. I just don't find it being very fruitful. Yeah. Um, and so they, but you know, my parents kind of, and I, my parents are different than my wife's parents, but my parents, you know, they just kind of do what quote unquote, the man of God says to do. So if the man of God says, hey, we should do a trunk or treat or a haunted house or a, a, a blow up community festival or anything like this, they just, you know, that's what they should be doing. And and I'm the, I'm the type of guy where like, no, that's uh, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't really feel mm -hmm. like doing that. You know, I only have so much time and energy and I don't need to be devoting it to stuff that's one, that's extra biblical. I'm not saying it's unbiblical, but it's extra biblical and, and not necessarily needed. Um, and for instance, the the church we're pastoring right now, um, we don't have Sunday evenings, uh, and particularly because well, they they had stopped it during COVID, um, but they had never gone back to it. And so when I transitioned, they asked what you know when I went became their pastor, they asked what would I what I would want to do, and I said I am more than happy for you to use your Sunday evenings with your families, and and intentional. Don't just let it be flippant time because then at that point we're just wasting the, the our time but um make it intentional about being with your families and and having the lord's day celebrating the lord's day yeah. with your families um and so again it's neither here nor there but it, it, it at, the, at best we could say it's not mandatory sunday evenings and so um that that would be one thing but i think my parents would still look at me like like you're not going to church on sunday evenings uh that's that's terrible. <laughs> that type of an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife's parents would be more. Um, they were in an IFB church, but I don't think they were ever truly IFB. Like I, I, I in oh, their gosh. hearts. Um, uh, so I, you know, I can't. Speak they didn't my... ask uh, Jack Hiles into their hearts. Okay. No, 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 uh, <laughs> no. And to be fair, when I when I was growing up, I had a relatively moderate IFB pastor. I I still have a world of opinion of him, and I, and I think sometimes we can go too far and to be bashing the men in the oh, yeah. IB camp. Cause there's a, there was a lot and still are a lot of faithful pastors in that world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I learned to take the scriptures seriously through him. Unfortunately, he left when I was still nine, I think. So it was, it was very maybe 10 or 11, but he, he was there and I still remember him preaching. And after he left, he, I think he was a Bob Jones graduate. And I actually, that's who I got my books from. He hit when he retired and was, you know, getting ready to pass away, all his son gave me all of his dad's books. Wow. And so that's where I found in his library, he had Oliver B. Green and he had uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And mm. so there was just a wide range of stuff in his library. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so after he left, right in the time I was joining junior high, that's when we got the serious IFB pastors that were like, uh, we the church I was growing again. This is a town of six thousand people or a city of six thousand people. Uh, the church we had was like five hundred people. It was a huge hmm. church. Um, and since that pastor came in, I want to say the early nineties, uh, that new pastor came. 
the church went from being like a 500 person church to like a 140 person church. And it was because he, you couldn't sing in a choir unless you had a tie. You, he would, he would follow guests out into the parking lot and say, Hey, if you're not wearing skirts, don't come back to our church. Like, what are we thinking here? Um, <laughs> he he had heard of a new church growth strategy. Uh, <laughs> it it, it oh, didn't work out. And 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 one of the pastors I remember very vividly commenting on the people that were leaving and said, "We're just trimming the fat off of our church," hmm. and they were leaving over silly, silly things. Uh, and so it it was at the time. I I mean I was still young and I was in high school, and so I. I didn't really care. I mean, yeah. to be honest with you. And so I didn't, it was only afterwards that you're thinking back to growing up in church and, and just how bad that was. And so, um, but all that, all that to say is, is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't look back on my experience with, with regret. I, I, you know, could have been better. Yes. But at the same time, they gave me a, a love for the word of God that, that they're the ones who led you to the Lord, right? Right. They led me to the Lord. Uh, they gave me, uh, a desire for his word. Um, we would disagree on a lot of things, but at the end of the day, there the gospel was was preached, and mm-hmm. yeah, and led me to the Lord. So, uh, I, I'm I'm friendly with the guys at like the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast and stuff like that. They were kind to me when I came back from you know Norway with cancer. They they sent love offerings and stuff like that. Um, so so, but at the same time, I I couldn't I couldn't officially join them. I think at one time they had to ask about joining my podcast with theirs and, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I just couldn't officially do it because I, I didn't want to be known as someone who was um, uh, upset at their IFB background and not yeah. to say that they always are, but it's the kind of the impression that they give well, off. Yeah. For the I crap. Mean, you, you kind of yeah. define yourself when you name a podcast or a ministry that way, you kind of define yourself as someone who's anti something, you know? Right. right. Um, yeah, I get that. <clears throat> For sure. So when did you, uh, jumping now back to getting to Norway, when did you land in Norway? Was it before the uh, pandemic times or? (laughs) We we had, we had reached a hundred percent support. I think it was in February or March of 2020 or whenever COVID hit that same year. And so it took a couple months to get our permits and our passports and all this stuff ready. And not our passports, we had those, but our permits from Norway. Um, and then while we were waiting on our permits to be approved, COVID hit and then everything locked out. And so we sat in Missouri on the farm, which is a great place to ride out COVID was in, on the farm. I hear um, you. Yeah. And so we, we, we lived in Missouri, uh, for six months, I think, and we couldn't get to Norway. And I want to say it's September, 2020. I want to say that's when we arrived. Is that when COVID happened? 2020? Yeah. Yeah. And yes. it was uh, March when everything started to hit the fan. Right, so we we so then we wouldn't have left until September of 2020, um, and it, it and so we we didn't get there. We we, were, we weren't there very long, and uh, I was we were just kind of thinking about this the other day. We're, we have been back now for almost about as long as we were there, um, and man, when it was our our story in Norway, we told to some of the leadership of our mission board, and a few of them commented like we have never heard of anyone having a worse 18 months. Uh, of uh, than you all have. I mean, obviously there is worse, like you know, death and stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, right. Um, but this the conglomeration of everything that had happened in that time period was just horrible. Uh, church splits to uh, uh, just 
lies and all sorts of stuff being it was just crazy and then yeah, cancer and, and, on top of that and let alone the entire society being in flux because day to day with the pandemic situation things were changing and <laughs> oh and then we we were so excited to get to europe because you know I, i'm a traveler i love traveling i've always loved traveling and we were so excited to get to europe because now it's like you know driving across the river here and mm -hmm. going to kentucky i could get to germany i could get to sweden you know and uh everything shut down so <laughs> we couldn't go anywhere and we could go we could go around norway but outside of that we could uh we couldn't go anywhere else uh, had you learned the language already and everything we are we're about 50 percent proficient so okay. if, I, if i if i if i hear a conversation between norwegians i could probably get the gist of what they were talking about um but i probably couldn't translate for you fluently so yeah um because of that we it we uh, you know, long story short, we're not going back to Norway, um, at least at this time. And the reason is I need scans every three months. I'm set with my doctor here. Uh, it would be a terrible time to not only get permits again, but to get over there, get into a, a doctor's visit. And because there's such a high chance of it reoccurring, um, I'm not going to get treatment there. And to be honest with you, I'm, I don't trust them to even do the scans. Mm -hmm. And so... We we decided to stay here. Actually, this two weeks ago, we officially made the switch. We're now um, missionaries to North America. Um, they, I think, they kind of knew my situation. Yeah. Um, and they're like, you know, we're we're gonna help you, uh, just plant, be where you're planted right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we've switched over to North America. And I and I think the idea is we're gonna be serving and working along pastors and churches in in the Appalachian region. Kind of what we're mm -hmm. doing now. Kind of like um, uh, with revitalization work or? Yeah, yeah. Working okay. with revitalization, working with like the church I'm serving in right now. Um, it, you know, what, what's really interesting is how God has kind of worked this all together. Um, as, as I said, when I, when I was sitting out in the hallway after the colonoscopy that discovered the cancer, I was eerily calm. It was It was so calm. And the thing that was coming to my mind was hmm. the sermon that I preached in November of the sovereignty of God over all things of life. And, and that all the points in that sermon had come back. And it's like, you know what? God is absolutely sovereign over this. What you know what there there's no reason for me to be fearful, um, to be to be upset, to to wonder why. And that, those are all the questions I was coming on. Why well, in the yeah. world would you would you send us all all through that work of raising support, send us over here only to give me cancer 18 months later and, and for me to go home. Um but, you know, it was, it was just so eerily calm throughout the whole hospital experience. And then as we left the hospital, um, my wife and I were leaving the hospital hand in hand. And I was seeing people that were walking around town. Their lives had not changed. And when we got into the car, I lost it for about five minutes. Uh, and I'm, I'm a very even keel person. Like I, I, I think of a, one of those... Um, EKGs or something going bouncing up and down. I'm like the dead, like I'm just always even keel. But I, when I lose it, I lose it for about five minutes and then I'm back, you know, back mm. to normal. And I lost it for five minutes. And the main question on my mind was why, like why not, not an accusatory sense, but just, I want to know what's going on. Like, yeah. And I, and I remember I had this feeling like it, God is, is if this is the end, why there's so there's so much more that i could have done for you there's so much uh that i had to offer and and i and, and it just kind of went back to that sermon and and then 
what really happened is I started thinking about the book of Job and, and um, I remember it, it, it took a few weeks of processing, of course, because we had a lot going on, um, especially during that sur- six weeks after surgery, you're kind of sitting there, you're processing information. And at the end of the day, I had to come to a, a, a point where if God would require my life now, at this point, when I, I theoretically could have done so much more, but God requires my life here and now and calls me home. Am I okay with that? Hmm. If that's how God has chosen to glorify my life or glorify himself through my life, uh, am I okay with that? Hmm. And at the end of the day, I had to say yes. Hmm. Now that doesn't, and what I found is there's a war between your emotions and reality. And in reality, I'm okay with that. When I allow my emotions to take over, that's when it gets to me. Um, Were you in the headspace at that time? Like, so you come back, you get the surgery, you start going through the chemo stuff. Were you in the headspace then of I'm probably going to die? It seemed more likely than not you were going getting ready to die. Right. That was that was the more that was the more probable thing. I got. I didn't know. I remember very vividly having my in April of 2022 after surgery, before chemo. I remember having this experience. This might be my last birthday. Like I remember vividly having that, having that, you know, by God's grace, I've had another one since then. Um, but, but yeah, I just but remember that, I, that'll follow you around like a dark cloud. If, if you oh, allow yeah. it uh, to just every single day, think this might be the day that I die. And that, that really starts to seep into every aspect of life that, that can really mess you up mentally. Yeah. For me, it was, um, it was very strange because I, I, for years, I, I've kind of walked around with that cloud for years. It's like, you know, what's what's going to get me? You know, there were times when I didn't think I'd make it out of Iraq. Uh, mm-hmm. There were times when, um, yeah, there's just just very times where you're like, man, what? I might not make it out of here. And so I've kind of, I've, I'm okay with that. Death doesn't necessarily bother me. It's it's more so like stuff that 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 come up from that idea. Uh, so for example, um, all the assurance issues I had as a teenager, they all came back Mm -hmm. and there was a month where I struggled with assurance. Uh, there was moments of being dissatisfied uh, assurance of salvation, right? Just because you didn't think you had demonstrated enough of true belief or what was, what was the issue there? It it was just, uh, uh, irrational thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. it was emotions and, these these things that had I had struggled with as a teenager, um, when you're making all those decisions for Christ every time a, a new evangelist came to town, um, all those came back. Um, and then what I realized is you can't trust your emotions, and you can't you, when you, that makes your thinking irrational. And you have to stick to truth, what the Bible says, what what we know to be true. Uh, and if you if you allow the truth to maintain your emotions. Uh, you're fine. But if I allowed my emotions to dictate how I felt about the truth, that's when I would lose it. Mm. Um, and, and and so far at this point, I can say by God's grace that that um, most issues I'm fine with now. Like there's one thing that still bothers me. It's the thought of my wife getting remarried to some other dude. I, I cannot get past that. Really? I, it, oh, I, I mean, the, the theoretical thing, I understand. <laughs> But the thought of it drives me nuts. Yeah. Like, like if I if if I could somehow know the future and I did pass away and I know that she would get remarried, I'd probably go knock off that dude. Like wow. it would probably wow. like, 
that's I, I'm so that drives me up the wall to this very day. So um, when in 2020, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about how you were on the Missouri farm there for six months as you were mm-hmm. waiting to get over to Norway. Mm-hmm. We um we got infected in the end of June. Well, no, start of July 2020, right when we left on a 30 day sabbatical. Uh, I get another sabbatical this year, but uh, that was my my first one ever. And mm-hmm. um, day one of the sabbatical, we tested positive, <laughs> and uh, and we got it pretty bad, dude. I mean, I I got it worse than she did, and I I still have effects from that. I mean, it, it messed me up. You got a you probably bad. got an earlier version then, because mine was yeah. I think one of the variants that kind of spun off of it. Yes, we got more of the fresh off the boat uh, version, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And it it had me really messed up, and I went through an extended period thinking I I wasn't going to make it because I when we got back after six weeks on a sabbatical, I came to my doctor with uh, a list of ten symptoms I had at at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, "Well, let's just order them in priority and start looking at them one by one." And I went to I had to go to a neurologist and had to see specialists for some stuff. Um, it was a it was a crazy time dealing with that. And as I was thinking about, you know, okay, I might not make it. I mean, COVID kills people and, and perhaps this will be what takes me. Uh, I remember, you know, thinking through what if Melissa gets remarried and Mm -hmm. thinking, yeah, good for her. (laughs) (laughs) So we had, we had polar opposite reactions to that. (laughs) Cause I I thought, you know, if she died, I know I couldn't make it on my own. Uh, I'd want to get remarried and, you know, and and I've had to tell her because she's definitely more of your mindset where she can't ever imagine being married to someone else. And I, I've told her, you know, multiple times, get remarried. Our kids need, need a father and you need a husband and it it would be good for her. If if roles were reversed and my wife passed away, I would probably spend a good five year period on the road with a dog. Yeah. That's what you say. I don't know, man. Yeah. (laughs) I I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, But, you know, I'm I'm not even, I'm not even like, I have not tried to persuade my wife or anything not to get remade or anything like that. Sure. Um, I, in in, in the back of my mind, I'm okay with it because it's natural. Um, But but totally understand the the mental block though. I mean, that's understandable. I I can't think about it. I don't want to think about it because it drives me insane Mm. to have some other man, loving my wife and something like that. It's just, Oh yeah. It fills me with rage. Um, (laughs) Well, let's move on real quickly before you smash something. No, but, but I'll, but I'll say this, you know, God was so good. um, When I was sitting back here going through chemo, I'd I'd, I'd go to church every now and then my, 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 and by that, I mean like my immune system was low. So I was supposed to be uh, kind of avoiding people in church when you have large groups of people. So I would, I would typically show up late, get into the back of the service if I was feeling well, um, and then slip out before uh, the service ended, like during the, um, yeah, the the invocation or something like that. And um, <clears throat> uh, I, I just remembered thinking, like, man, I really want to preach again. I really, really want to preach again because um, I I had not yet been able to uh, really go through a large series with with in, in any of my positions as a youth pastor as a as a even in Norway and stuff like that um and so i just started praying for an opportunity and and i got a few opportunities to preach and and uh my sending church as when the pastor when i started feeling better but then there was a church about 10 minutes away 15 minutes away um whose pastor i knew he was a supporting church pastor 
his wife died of cancer two years ago. Mm. Um, and he had never taken a sabbatical, never took a day off. He was kind of, uh, I mean, he might've taken a few weeks off, who knows, but, um, he never allowed himself to grieve. And long story short, he was having a, a, a crisis of faith and, he asked if I'd be willing to step in and take over in January mm-hmm. of 2023, whenever he resigned. And so he resigned. I start, I've started preaching at this church. And the first message I preached was the same one that I preached at that conference in Norway, because it's easy to say on one end that God is sovereign over all things while your life is relatively going. Okay. It's a completely different thing entirely to preach that God is sovereign over all things when you didn't know, you don't know if you're going to live you know, to see 2024. Yeah. Um, and so I preached the same message to myself and to others that, that God is completely sovereign and I have cancer and that is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think back towards um, <clears throat> the, the gospels and you see all the apostles, man, they had three years of intense discipleship training with Jesus. They walked with him all over and when he's when he's ascended into heaven, they're commissioned to go out to do the work of ministry. And man, you see John going out, and he he has an amazing ministry. You have all the apostles, according to history, going off to various places, starting churches. You have Peter doing his thing, and then you have James. And James, within what weeks, months, is killed on the steps. Yeah, Acts chapter twelve. Yeah, and you think of all this stuff that he could have done. And he's killed on the steps. Hmm. And it's like, am I okay if God has that route for my life? Hmm. Where, where, where you have all this you know, possible stuff you could be doing, but he decides to take your life early on and somehow glorifies himself through that. And at the end of the day, I had to come to this realization, yes, it's okay. I know that mentally. And then you had to let it seep into your emotions. Um, and so I, I decided to take that church and um, kind of an interim role. Uh, Lord willing, it may turn into something more permanent uh, as the Lord allows me to live. And um, but what's 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 interesting is that about every other person in that church either has cancer or has someone in their family that has cancer. Wow. Um, and so it's it's almost as if God has taken us out in Norway and placed us in a situation where this church needs us, my wife and I, and we need them. And we are walking this road together. Amen. One of the reasons a lot of people in that church have cancer is because there's a uh, there's an old uh, nuclear power plant nearby that a lot of them worked in back in the 60s and 70s, and it gave all of them cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we buried our first individual about a month or two months ago now, and uh, there's at least four or five other people with cancer in that church, and it's a smaller church, around 60 people. Uh, so and, and then. You, you never know. Uh, some people are recovering from cancer. Uh, and so we're, we're walking down this road together. And uh, maybe it's just because I'm a glutton for punishment, but I decided to preach through Job. And uh, man, we are going through the book of Job and and we're realizing that God has every right to do whatever he pleases. And no matter what, whether we have a good report this month or a bad report this month, and we've had both at this church, we had good reports and we've had bad reports. 
And um, we praise and glorify God because he's worthy of our trust and he's He's good and he's just. And so it, it's been a wonderful uh, book to go through. It is kind of a dark book to go through consistently. So we're taking a small break for the summer to go through one of the um, uh, one of Jesus' uh, sermons in, in, in the Gospels. Uh, and so I'm assuming not uh, the Olivet Discourse. You're not going to take a break from <laughs> suffering to talk about tribulation. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I might have overstepped when I said sermon. I think we're, go- we're going to the uh, to the passage where he's telling, uh, where he asked Peter, who do you think that I am? Okay. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and he says, on, you know, on that truth, on that rock, we're going to build our church. I'm going to build my church. So we're going to talk about that kind of scenario, that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's very positive, very, um, uh, even that, even that section in, in the end where he said the gates of hell should not, you know, overcome it or not prevail against it. Um, I take maybe it's a minority view, but I I don't view that as the 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 evil kingdom. Um, Jesus promising that the evil kingdom of the evil one will not destroy the church. I take that as gates are defensive in nature, and so what Jesus is saying is, what as I'm building my church, and I'm making I'm making no uh, eschatological opinions here. This is just it what like I, you're teeing up post millennialism. No, no, I, 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 honestly, I could not say, I, I do not know where I fall with eschatology. I, I find, uh, I find them all to be incomplete in some ways. Uh, and so, but what I'm saying is that when I view that passage, I see Jesus as promising at very least the disciples that, the gates of hell are not going to prevent my church from growing. Yeah. Um, and so that that's how I view uh that that passage. Um, that the that the disciples are going out into a lost and dark world, and they are going to be essentially taking over from the king the kingdom of the evil one by stealing since stealing, but conquering people, bringing them into the kingdom. Hmm. Um if you want to play that out in an eschatological sense, uh that that's you know your prerogative, I guess. But uh, at the very least, Jesus is making that promise to the disciples. Um, and so uh, it's, it's going to be very encouraging, very promising, because, you know, a lot of the churches here in the Appalachian region, and for anybody listening, that's how you pronounce Appalachia. It's it's the Lasha. Um, and, you know, you know, someone's not from Appalachia when they call it Appalachia. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, this is the Appalachian region. And uh, it, the, the churches here are, are really declining. Uh um, it's one of the worst regions I've read of all the all of the country as far as people that actually attend church. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of churches around here um, back in the 70s and 80s were were very large and now they're, you know, dwindling. So, well, <laughs> but I, I know like uh, at least for West Virginia, general population is declining. We I was looking at uh, the census data whenever it came out last in Utah percentage wise is the fastest growing country or state in the country. Really? Uh, What's that? Uh, a lot of Californians. It's like a pit stop on their <laughs> way to, I don't know, uh, greener pastures. The, they end up going to Texas or somewhere. But a lot of people yeah. come out of California wanting a conservative refuge that's more affordable. And for now, on both of those things, even though we're evolving on both of those fronts, Utah fits the bill. Mm. And uh, and so we get a, and we have a lot of like LDS people who are moving back after going away for college and work and everything else, they want to come back here and raise their family here and stuff. But, uh, but I saw on that census data, the last time it came out that West Virginia, I think was the only state in the union that is actually declining. They, they went negative with percentages, Mm. I think, or maybe they were just Mm. super duper low, but they were, they were the, at the bottom as far as growth goes. Yeah. Um, 
I know it's right next to Ohio, but it's not Ohio. So I don't know if that's something you, you've been seeing too, is uh, just generally the yeah, place we, drinking or what? Probably. One of the reasons is there's not a lot of great jobs. And if you're not in the, if you're not in the medical system here Coal. or, or teaching, uh, a lot of the industry here is left. We do a lot of coal plants. Uh, we had a lot of coal plants. A lot of, uh, even our atomic plant is kind of, they're shutting down. It'll take many years for them to shut down, but it's it's shutting down. Um, and so a lot of the good jobs have left, especially like technology jobs. There's nothing like that around here that I know of. Um, and so, yeah. So where I live is in the tri-state region, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio all together. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of the place I live. So uh, we have a unique culture, even unique from Ohio, um, because most Ohio is is Midwest, but we don't really have a Midwest culture here. We have a um, more of an Appalachian culture. Bluegrass, um, snake handling, overall. <laughs> there, there are church nearby in Kentucky that have snake handling that, that I've heard. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not ungone. But, you know, you have a sense around here, at least in the Appalachian region of, as was typical in, in past generations, is kind of a glorification of ignorance. Um, like you were considered more spiritual as a pastor in some of these small churches if you didn't have education because you know you're just you're a podunk simple boy who loves right. loves Jesus and, right. and that uh, that's like your cred, right? And I don't know I don't know who said it, but someone said once that people love uh, certainty over truth, and that's very true around here. There's still a large amount of people around here that are King James only, um, like not not preferred. I, I'm okay with people that that prefer that translation. Sure. By all means, uh, you know, um, even there are some people that are even convinced that that it's the most accurate by all means, you know. Um, but there are some that are like, you know, it's double inspired. If this is the I mean, legitimately, you'll hear this around here. If there's if, if it's good enough for the apostles, it's good enough for me type of an idea. I mean, they have just no understanding, no understanding of where their Bible came from. Um, that there is well, I've recently discovered right here in my right here in the town I'm living in right now of Minford, Ohio. There's a pastor who. Uh, is a hyper dispensationalist, and he preaches that the old saints uh, were saved by grace and works; mm-hmm. that they had to work either way into. And I was, it's like unreal, mm-hmm. un- unreal that that's still around here. Um, but it is. It's the Appalachians. I, I love it. it. It's so family oriented, um, which can cause problems in churches because there's like three or four churches, three or four families in a church, basically. Two edged sword for sure. Yeah. But at the same time, it's man, we we just we love our traditions, and they they are hard to 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 break, mm. hard to break. Um, but yeah, well, so as you were headed to Norway, or or maybe during your time in Norway, that's when you became more interested in Bible interpretation, I guess. Because I mean, something we haven't mentioned this whole time is that you are uh, the host of the hermeneutics podcast, and I'm not sure what the future holds for that, but you want to just walk me through how you got into that and, and where it's headed? Right. So it it really began while I was raising support for Norway. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands as a single missionary. So you can't, as a single missionary, they don't, they don't stick you. When you go to a church to preach and to present your ministry, uh, they don't, put you up in a family home because the husband might leave and now you're home alone with these wife and kids. So that's inappropriate. So they always give you a hotel room hmm. or they put you in a house with another single guy. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of downtime, a lot of downtime when you're raising support as a single guy. Um, and there's only so many national parks you can visit. 
And so <laughs> true. <laughs> what, one of the, one of the things I did was, um, I started a doctorate program, a doctor of ministry. And, uh, the emphasis of that doctor of ministry was going to be, uh, hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. Wow. And so <clears throat> by the time we got to, got, it got married by the time we got to, uh, the farm in early 2020 and COVID hit, we didn't really have anything to do, but just wait. Everything was already done. Our support was raised. Everything was done. And so part of my project was, was teaching, um, teaching hermeneutics in the local church. Hmm. One of the things that was never done uh, when I grew up, I figured it would, we do it, we do it intrinsically, I guess when I've noticed and other people have noticed that the people in the church tend to interpret the Bible uh, the way the pastor preaches. Yep. So if you're preaching that, you know, as one famous evangelist in the IFB world does, uh, that David's five smooth stones have something to say to us. And what that says is that um, that you ought to dress well for church, you ought to pay your pastor well, you ought to go door to door knocking, you ought to do all these things. That's what David's stones are telling us today. Um, if, if you're preaching that from the pulpit week in, week out, your people are going to start interpreting the Bible that way. And the, the, the pulpit steers the church. Right. Yeah. And so I, I thought it'd be good to maybe help churches and, and to develop a program that, that you can take your church through how to teach them the Bible. Um, obviously, COVID struck. You can't do that. And so um, I didn't really think about doing it for the doctoral program. I just thought I have all this stuff that I've been doing. Might as well do something with it. Mm-hmm. So I started a podcast really off a of whim. I, I didn't really think anything would come of it. It was just something to do, honestly. Yeah. Um, during that time. And, uh, and so I started just recording episodes of, of, of teaching basic hermeneutics and, and, uh, I, I personally, I've been, I mean, it's still not like a, a massive podcast by most standards, but, um, I mean, I'm getting a thousand downloads per episode, something mm-hmm. like that. And, and it's way more, um, response than I've been getting lately. Um, it, I, I'm, I'm stalled recently. I'm, I'm, I think I'm in season four or five. I'm kind of stalled because largely because of chemo and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm going to be picking it up here soon. One of the major things was, you know, while you're going through chemo, you can't think. You just can't think. And and, it, and my writing was terrible and, and my thinking was terrible. It's only been in the last three or four months that I've been able to think clearly. Wow. Um, my I, I just started noticing. I, I've used, I used to have some really quick wit and that was kind of declined as well and i've just started noticing that coming back so now i feel more comfortable i typically don't do interviews like this that 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 uh um that kind of off the cuff mm. uh because I, I i've never been necessarily a quick thinker it's always been more of a a slow but especially after chemo it's been it's been even worse um so but now i feel like i'm getting back to normal and and we have a house now as opposed to living in a camper and and so it's uh, stuff's becoming more stabilized. So I hope to, um, and all my books were lost. So I had, I bought a bunch of new books because our stuff that we sent back from Norway, um, our friends thinking they were being kind and they were being kind chose cause we left, we left everything there. Um, they packed up our house for us and they picked the cheapest company they could find thinking they were doing us a favor and, and they're very kind and I'm not slamming them at all, but it just the way it worked out. You, you get what you pay for. And yeah. so this company took six or no, 12 months for our stuff to get back. So 
we just got our stuff maybe two months ago. And so, oh. uh, and I had all, all your stuff, all everything except for like six suitcases. Oh. Um, and so we, we just got all of our stuff back. We had rebought a lot of things. And so now I'm doing all these book giveaways on the podcast because I had rebought all my books. Oh, okay. And, gotcha. and so, now, I get- so, so you got, so just so I'm clear, you, you got everything. It took forever, but you got everything except for six suitcases. Yeah, so the six suitcases are what we took with us when we left. I see. Okay, but but everything, but everything they packed up and sent, you, they actually mm-hmm. ended up there. Yeah, we, we, I was, we I was got, thinking you were going to say they lost they lost your books. And, oh no, no, no. Okay, we, we we got rid of a lot of stuff because it was super expensive to ship. Okay. Um, so we everything that we had accumulated in Norway, all of our furniture and stuff like that, we just sold there. Ended up taking a huge loss on everything, um, but because. Uh, the way the Norwegians are, they, they don't really buy a lot of used stuff because they're an extremely wealthy nation off the North Sea oil. So they, like we, you could buy, for instance, a China cabinet made of solid oak simply because it's not the style there anymore. Mm. Everybody likes the Ikea junk. Um, so you can get a solid oak China cabinet for probably less than $30. Wow. I mean, it's just, just immaculate looking thing. And, and just because it's no style anymore. So, we had a lot of stuff that not in style because it's still kind of our style in the States um, that we just couldn't sell. And, but you know, it takes a year to get all of our stuff back. So now, now I have all my podcasting stuff back and things like that. Um, I hope to, to open a startup again. Um, I think we're currently in a, in a history of interpretation. Um, That's been a a fascinating study before uh, chemo and or cancer came and, uh, I think I'm going to start doing more interviews and more uh, book reviews and stuff like that on yeah. some of the Hermeneutics books that are out. Um, but yeah, so hopefully we can get that up and coming again, started. How how have your views of biblical interpretation changed? How have you changed in the realm of hermeneutics through that side ministry that you've had? Yeah, one of the major ways, um, <clears throat> again with some, not all, but some of the pastors I grew up under in the IFB world. Um, it was all topical preaching um, mm. that was, again, not all. I don't want to throw everybody under the bus. And and some of them are very good. I'm not, I'm not saying the topical sermons are bad in, in general. Um, but it wasn't expository. It wasn't expositional. And um, you could get basically anything you wanted. I remember very vividly one of the pastors preaching a sermon on Peter, uh, seeing Jesus post-resurrection, jumping out of the boat, swimming to the swimming to Jesus. One of the things he does before he jumps into the water is he puts his cloak back on or, or some, of the, some of the garments that he has, and he jumps into the water. And the point of that passage, according to this pastor that, that was at our church, um, was that we should dress our best before we come to church, before we come to Jesus, hence jumping into the water. I mean, I... Even then, not knowing, you know, not being educated in in, in biblical interpretation, I was like, "That's a fetch." Like, like that. <laughs> he, he he didn't say that uh, he had a win- Peter had a Windsor knot on his tie, did he? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, you always go full Windsor, never half Windsor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I've been told that there were some churches that would even like you you could have cert- wire frame glasses but not plastic frame glasses ah, or, or something yes. like that because they were like hippies back in the day um but yeah so I, one of the things that it's just i become more um you know one of the things i always appreciated about 
John MacArthur is, and, and I, I really don't know enough about him to really have an opinion, to be honest with you, one way or another. One of the things I really appreciated about him, and one of the things that brought me more into Reformed theology, at least the doctrines of grace, was that the, the, the way they approached the scriptures, that the scriptures were king. They didn't have a they didn't have a point. They didn't have a thing that they were trying to preach. They inserted into the scriptures, but whatever the scripture said, that was that's what the point was. They had a really high emphasis on authorial intent, um, and, and and that's what kind of that's the major change I would say in how my approach to hermeneutics is. I I no longer have an idea of what I want to say, and then I'm somehow making the scriptures uh, say that. Which is very easy to do and very clever. Hence the you know the David's five smooth stones said. Um, uh, I mean, it's just just un unreal. He he would go from David's stones. Uh, David picked five stones. Uh, there's a sister verse to this passage, whatever that means, and that is in when Jesus is walking into the triumphal entry, and uh, he says, "If these people stop praising me, the stones would cry out." So if Jesus says stones can cry out, then maybe David's stones have something to say to us today. And <clears throat> that's what he said, you know, dress well, pay your pastor well, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Man, and that's, just, that's so much harder than just normal exegesis. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the time and effort that it took to, to formulate that, why not just say what the, the text yeah, says? That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and so then, then there was another case where same man, he he was preaching a message where the disciples were told by Jesus to stay here and pray while he went on to pray himself. And he was criticizing the disciples for not following Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane to pray with Jesus. Like they, they stayed where they were. And one of the gospels doesn't make it clear that Jesus commanded them to stay or told them to stay. And so he was preaching from that particular gospel. And I said, but the synoptic gospels, the, the, the other gospels make it clear. And I actually had a phone call with this gentleman the 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 the, the gospels make it clear that Jesus commanded them to stay there and pray mm. while he went on so they they were doing what he what he told them to do so your entire point of your and the points he was making in the sermon were good uh we need to be close to Jesus we need to be praying we need good points but the entire way that you're modeling your interpretation is you're going against what the actual gospels say happened and it just so I think the biggest point that I'd come away with is allow the scriptures to, to speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and if, if that brings you to some uncomfortable conclusions, then you need to either address the conclusion that it's coming to or, or find ways to harmonize it with other portions of scripture, mm -hmm. uh, which is where your systematic theology comes in. So, um, so you've essentially uh, graduated from eisegesis to exegesis. That's been the change. There, that's that's a fair that's a fair assessment. Yes, yes, good. So that that's been the largest change. Um, I, I, to to be honest with you, I, I'm still, <clears throat> I'm still, un unsettled or, or, or um, how should I say this? I, I can no longer call myself a dispensationalist, even though most of what I understand would be dispensational. Um, because there are certain portions of scripture that I read that make better sense to me um, from maybe a, like say Matthew 24, for instance, it makes better sense to me from a partial preterist point of view than it does from a dispensational point of view. Um, I'm not saying that one or the other is, is right or wrong. What I'm saying is, you know, in, in the same way that if I'm going to, 
refer to myself as something, take a name for myself, I better be certain that I, I hold to that. Um, and, and that's, and that's why I say like, what I find interesting is, is dispensational, um, uh, hermeneutics will, will, will criticize, well, let's say, uh, reformed hermeneutics and, and, and saying stuff like, uh, they don't take it literally. And then the other side will say the exact same thing about the dispensational guys. Uh, and so, uh, one of the things I'm really important about now is 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 being fair to both sides, because um, I, I kind of view myself kind of in the middle right now. As far as I don't know where I'm going to land, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I'll but I'll land. And, and I and I'm what I'm saying is I what the same. Um, when I see a dispensational interpretation of Matthew 24, and I and I find that the the pre the partial preterist view is more convincing to me. Um, there are other passages. Where I look at like, I look at this side. I say no. I, I think you're making some very large leaps. Whereas the dispensational side makes better sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so that's that's where I'm kind of at right now. Um, and uh, I, I'm what I'm what I'm passionate about right now is just making the elementary principles of hermeneutics known. Yeah, because at the end of the day, both sides would claim to be authorial intent would claim to be, you know, let the scripture speaking for themselves. Um, and so that's what I'm passionate about. Not necessarily. And then there's just debates everywhere. I recently, right. Now, when I was going through chemo, I realized that the reform Baptist crowd was all up in a bunch. You had, was it James white that was up with, um, uh, Oh, what's his name? Both were guests on my podcast. Uh, Richard, um, Barcelos. Barcelos, yeah, they were kind of upset at one another with uh, apostolic interpretation and stuff like this, and and so I, I, thankfully, I think my my head was so in a fog with chemo that I never really got into that, and yeah. it kind of it kind of died before chemo was over. So, um, uh, I, I never really got to engage in that, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that's where I'm at right now. It's just I, I want those scriptures to speak for themselves. And in the same way, Martin Luther said, you know, you, you have to, your conscience is bound to uh, to what the scripture says. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's important for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's but, uh, I got that up uh, above my computer monitors on my bulletin board, a little pennant that my wife got for me. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Martin Luther, 1531. Yeah, that's it. <clears throat> that's good. Um, you know, if you. If you need a resource that does a deep dive on dispensational hermeneutics, I I know of a podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was actually encouraged when I actually saw your guys come out, and uh, uh, I had always wanted to do kind of a collaboration. Um, yeah. But then, but then cancer hit, and and uh, and I've listened to a few of yours, uh, some in preparation for this, but also um, just in the past. Uh, that's really the only thing I've been able to do for twenty twenty two was read. Read, watch movies, listen to podcasts. Um, I didn't feel like doing anything else, uh, and even that. Um, so uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading, and and now yeah. that I'm back into what's what the re- one of the reasons I I haven't really got into podcasting like full time again was I I think I'm able to do something, mm. and then I'm reminded of how just how much I've um, I need to recover. Uh, yeah, your so, your limitations in your mind and your limitations in your body are a bit different. You you bump right. up against those limits when you set right. out to go do something. I I'm wondering, do, do you call yourself a cancer survivor? Uh, not not at this point because they don't they don't 
they don't say you're truly in remission until five years. Can, um, can you? Okay, so you, wow, five years. So you, you're thinking yeah. maybe if you get to five years, well, having these clear scans, what every three months? You said doing yeah. scans. Well, they, the first two years they'll do every three months. After that, they do two years of every six months, and then the last year you have one scan. Okay. And if you if you make it five years, they say that if you can get five years and the cancer hasn't returned, chances are it's never going to return. Okay. Um, at least, at least not that cancer. You might develop something else, um, but uh, that's when they declare you in remission. And, and in fact, um, I, but I'm also kind of a, again probably the military side of me is I, I don't I don't I don't buy into these like um, I'm trying to be cautious just because there might be cancer people listening to this. For instance, the 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 ringing of the bell after chemo yeah. treatment. I didn't ring it because I, I find it silly um, personally. Um, I know it means a lot to some people, so I'm not, you know, sure. saying that. But for me, the fight's not over with. Mm -hmm. The fight is not over for five years. Why am I ringing a bell right now? Um, and so that that was my mentality at it. But it, I also um, it, on that in that same vein, I really have always been kind of turned off by the whole, you know, kick cancer's butt kind of mentality. Like, uh, you know, kit, we're gonna we're gonna kill cancer, you know, like cancer is this actual, um, I don't know, almost human entity that we're mm. battling with and we are going to prove ourselves victorious by our own strength. There's like a right. lot of that kind of vibe in the right. cancer fighting community that I've never been comfortable with. And I'm right. sure, you know, we would articulate things the same way with the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Like right. cancer is God's cancer. He's in charge of this and we submit right. to what he brings. And, and, and listen, cancer is terrible. Yeah, absolutely terrible. Um, but at, at, at the end of the day, I think of it two ways. First is it is a naturalistic explanation in the history of the world. There is no better time to have cancer than right now. Yep. Yep. 200 years ago, I'd be dead. 15 years ago. I mean, things changed yeah. so much. <clears throat> yeah. Things change so much. You're right. And, and at the end of the day, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm 38 and some change. I have lived a better life in 38 years than 99% of the history of the world. I have nothing to complain about. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I am so blessed. I live in one of the best countries in the world, especially for, for medical treatment. Um, what, what really sad to me is when you see the children, they've never had a chance to live. They never had a chance. I mean, they don't, they don't even know what's going on. They don't even, that, that breaks my heart to this day. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I've lived a good and full life. God has been so blessed. Uh, God, God has blessed me so much. Um, you know, most people, I, I was given by the mission board, essentially a nine month sabbatical, just rest and heal, get through your treatment. Um, most people that you meet in the cancer centers, they have to work. They have, they have jobs. They have, yeah. um, our, our supporting churches have been so kind and, and, and blessing us financially. Um, I don't think I've really spent any money on my own medical bills yet. Um, and, and because people have, have blessed us financially. Uh, so we, we've been so blessed by the church, by God's people, um, with, with good health. I mean, it, it is a, it is a comfort that I'm outside of cancer was a relatively healthy young man. I mean, I, I've, I have responded to chemo and stuff probably better than, than if I was in my 60s, 70s, something like that. Um, so it's been a blessing, uh, 
the VA has stepped up with the PACT Act, recognized that my cancer is responsible or uh, linked to the burn pits. They have now taken over my medical expenses, uh, as well as made me disabled. I even have a handicap license plate now. I told the ladies in my church that I'm that I'll be fighting them for the good spots at church now. Yeah, right. um, so uh, we are we are so blessed. And then and and on, and on the other side of things, in the spiritual side of things, you know, I, I wrote an article for our mission board. It was saying that there was four points that that. In my theology, God is sovereign. God gave me cancer, or at least allowed me to have cancer. Mm. Um, he is walking with me through this battle of cancer. He has a purpose for giving me cancer. And at the end of the day, God has taken far more suffering off of my plate than I could ever imagine. Mm. Like th this, mo There's a reason why the apostles call it this light and momentary suffering, affliction. Um, this this is nothing compared to what Christ has taken from me. And so I can honestly say, by the grace of God, at this point through our study of the book of Job, like Job says, yet though he slay me, still I will trust him. Mm. That's that's where I'm at right now, and that's only by the grace of God. And so I, I have no reason to complain, no right to complain. One, from from a, a natural standpoint, from a, from a just a uh, an observation standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint, we have been so blessed by God. And, um, you know, he, he deserves glory, honor, and praise. And if I get my next scan in, I think it's July 6th, if I have my next scan in July 6th and the cancer is back, he is still worthy of our glory, honor, and praise. Mm -hmm. And so nothing has changed as far as our relation to him. Um, and whether I live 40 years or whether I live 70 years, 80 years, um, in reality, it's, it's but, a, but a blip in history. You know, as far as our lives that we are going to spend with God for eternity, it's but a blip of time. Wow. And so at the end of the day, though, it's it would be sad uh, to to leave this life early than maybe expected. Um, at the end of the day, it, I'll be with him. And so uh, in, not not to say that I'm standing here, you know, 100 uh, percent godly mentality all the time. There, there are times when I allow the emotions to to kind of overwhelm me and and uh and get the best of me and, and it makes me think temporarily um by and large by the grace of god i've been able to kind of keep my mind uh mm. set and so we're thankful and we're blessed and in some ways and you probably experienced this a little bit yourself with your covid scare uh there's ways that i think now that i never did before cancer there are things that I appreciate now that I mowing grass right now is the most fun experience for me. <laughs> I never thought, I never thought I'd be able to mow grass again. And I'm out there and I am happy as a lark when I'm out there yeah. mowing grass right now, because it is, it is just such a blessing. I wait, the sunrise have never felt better. The, the sunsets never been more sweeter. Uh, and so there's a way that I view the world now. And I view God that, that I never had before. Um, and in some ways I wouldn't want to change that. Um, yeah. And so it's been very blessed. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, this is going to come out uh, well after July 6th, probably September sometime. So you may need to go back and listen to your own words. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what uh, I'm thankful for this church right now um, that we're serving in because there are people that are <clears throat> in remission. There are people that are um, currently going through treatment and there's uh, one that I've already graduated to glory, to use that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's one man that just got diagnosed last month with cancer. So, man, we are we are walking through this journey together, and and God is holding us. So it's mm -hmm. good. 
Man, well, thanks for thanks for sharing your story today. Name, appreciate you coming on and giving me all your time. Sure. Thank you, brother. Anytime.